You're listening to Preserves, a Manitoba food history podcast, exploring the rich, flavorful history of Manitoba food and the people who make it, sell it, and eat it. From the packing table to the dinner table, from restaurant specials to grandma's secret recipes, we consider the cultural, social, and commercial aspects of Manitoba food and what it means to us. I'm your host, Kent Davies. As always, I'm joined with my co-host, University of Winnipeg business and food historian, Professor Janice Thiessen. Hi, Kent. What's in the pantry for us today? On this episode, we'll be showcasing student-based research and chatting about the unique marketing history of one of Manitoba's most loved snack food companies, Old Dutch. So I guess we want to do this episode because it's pretty much an entry point into the remarkable story that is Old Dutch Foods, but also we can showcase some of the work being done in the classroom by students as they research Manitoba food history. Some folks that may be listening to this podcast may not realize how multifaceted this project really is. It takes us across the province interviewing in our Manitoba food history truck, but it also has us here in the classroom teaching historical research and digital scholarship to students here at the University of Winnipeg. Yes. Instead of doing the traditional essay, students are producing projects that have the potential to be published for a public audience. So students are producing uh, podcast episodes or ArcGIS story maps, and they're doing that by doing their own archival uh, research and their own reading of the secondary sources, uh, but also incorporating interviews. Occasionally they will conduct them themselves, but for the most part we're having them use archived interviews. Out of that, we're doing newer forms of digital scholarship where we're training students on how to do podcasting and story maps. And this is where we are so fortunate to have the Oral History Center on this campus uh, because not only do you and Kimberly Moore, the two staff members, have all these skills in oral history, you also have these skills in digital history. It means that, you know, instead of uh, at the end of the course, half my students never coming to pick up their final essay and read my scintillating comments on it. <laughs> Instead, they have produced something that they can take with them and you know have as part of their portfolio, uh, whether that's for uh, showing other professors or through their grad school applications or showing to employers that these are practical skills that they have. And then also they have this opportunity for our project of publishing it through the Manitoba Food History Project website. This episode, we're going to hear a lot about Old Dutch Foods, something that you're very familiar with, having literally written the book on <laughs> them somewhat with Snacks of Canadian Food History. First off, I just, I just want to ask you, what drew you to your research of Old Dutch? I eat a lot of potato chips. <laughs> and, uh, and I have for 20-some years now been studying independently owned businesses both from the standpoint of management and owners and from the standpoint of the workers and consumers. And uh, when I was casting about for my next uh, business to study, mm -hmm. uh, my brother who knows my eating habits suggested Old Dutch. <laughs> uh, and from there, it just expanded to look at not just Old Dutch, but as many as we could, uh, independently owned snack producers across Canada. And so that's what ended up becoming the snacks book. So there are many facets worth exploring regarding Old Dutch, but one thing we wanted to explore in the project overall was how the marketing of certain foods has changed over time. And Old Dutch sticks out as a company that has used some interesting and clever marketing approaches over the years. 
To set this whole episode up, we're going to hear an excerpt from a podcast by University of Winnipeg student Benoit Morham on how nationalism and Canadian national identity played a role in selling brands through different generations and different contexts. It's a fairly unique situation in Old Dutch's case, and you'll hear why in a bit. So let's give it a listen. Nowadays, it's difficult to avoid the Buy Canada movement, especially on social media. A quick search online will give you Facebook pages posting news on Canadian companies and promoting locally made Canadian products. Most recently, these pages have the air of being under attack, with the UMSCA, the new trade agreement between Canada, Mexico and the United States, many feel that Canadian producers, particularly the milk industry, got the short end of the stick. Economic defense is one of many reasons for symbolic consumer nationalism, which, explained in the article Selling and Consuming the Nation, is the practice of buying national products for cultural motives, and could be practiced for any number of reasons. In this podcast, I delve into the history of Old Dutch foods to see whether the same type of nationalism seen in the Buy Canada movement played a role in their success, and if Canadian pride still plays a role to this day. But first, let us go back to a time when nationalism in advertising was at its most obvious. During the two world wars, nothing beats spurring patriotism than when your nation's resolve is being tested. Here in front of me, I have multiple advertisements from the Winnipeg Tribune, a newspaper that ran in Winnipeg from 1889 to 1980. As pointed out in the article, the advertising industry and World War I, many found it distasteful to take advantage of war to sell goods and services but others countered that they preferred their colorful and uplifting advertisements to the news of sadness and mourning. By observing and detailing these bluntly nationalistic tactics used by past companies, we can compare them to what present Canadian companies do to sell their product to determine just how nationalistic they are. Examples include Canadian Improved Bread, sold by the Canadian Bread Company, or Ingersoll Cheese, a favorite cheese of the Golden West. My personal favorite, the British Lion Roars Defiance, Preston Antifreeze for Motorists, curtailed to equip our fighting forces. What's important to notice about these advertisements is just how blatant they are. Buy this because it comes from Canada and is trusted by our soldiers, approved by the nation itself, or is simply made from Canadian products and ingredients. It's easy to compare this type of motivation for symbolic consumer nationalism with that of the current Buy Canada movement, which wants to defend the nation's economy. But how do these forms of symbolic consumer nationalism stack up to famously Canadian companies like Old Dutch? Do you think people in Winnipeg cared about the fact that Old Dutch was made in Winnipeg? Like you mentioned before, I it don't was cool think that... I don't think many people even know that. You know, yeah. I, I don't think people really care where it comes from. I don't think they even look at the bag made where. They will look at the ingredients, they will look at the fat and the cholesterol valve, but they will not look at where it's made. I don't think so people look at that. I don't know. They, I don't think they care, but you know, they should care like to see that it's a Winnipeg, like what started here, a little place in Winnipeg and grew and is bringing forward all this stuff in Winnipeg because our product is not set, this product is not set in, in Ontario. That was Bibi Masood. Bibi works on the floor at the Old Dutch Foods Plant in Winnipeg. 
The Canadian Snack Foods Project, led by Janice Thiessen, had Elizabeth Ann Johnson and Sarah Riley interview past and present Old Dutch Foods employees of the Winnipeg Food Plant. The questions pertained of the employees' past, their work at Old Dutch, and their views on the company and the snack food industry. It is within these interviews that we will find the answer to our question. One of the main questions the interviewees tackled was simple. What snacks in this industry are distinctly Canadian? The clear answer was flavors. Are the snacks you consume distinctly Canadian, do you think? Does that matter to you? Um, are they distinctly Canadian, the snacks you get? Does that matter to you? It doesn't really matter, but uh, in terms of distinctly Canadian, in terms of stuff, potato chip flavors, yeah, they're definitely distinctly Canadian flavors that, that come through with, with the chips. And I guess more related to British inputs, in particular, like salt and vinegar. People in the U.S. have yeah. no idea what salt and vinegar is all about. Yeah. And, uh, I guess these days, yeah, there, there's so many different influences from, from other foods around the world that, that wind up as flavors and, and snack foods. That was Bill Bashuki, plant manager. The flavors salt and vinegar and ketchup are a source of pride for Canada and their presence here is often compared to our southern neighbor, the United States, since neither flavors are offered there. Flavors are not the only thing that separates a Canadian chip from a U.S. chip. Canadian quality can be another source of pride. Well, certainly, yeah, flavors. Uh, flavors would be the main thing. And I, personally, I think that the quality uh, of the finished chip in Canada tends to be superior to what you would see typically in the U.S. for a similar size company. Okay. I've, seen, I've gone on websites and looked at, for example, kettle chips from a number of different places in the U.S. And quite honestly, I, I would be ashamed to put a product like that out. All discolored and rotten and bruised spots. Large companies like Nestle or Frito-Lays produce from and ship to nearly anywhere. This is not the case for smaller companies like Old Dutch, who usually have a narrower clientele. It's a, it is a moving target. In a lot of cases, it depends. Who has potatoes, who doesn't? Who has machine time, and who doesn't? So we could theoretically be shipping anywhere. Traditional market is, of course, Manitoba. Most of Saskatchewan, um, north the, northwestern Ontario, but we also now with the Dumpty Connection will ship into Ontario, further into Ontario and even into Montreal. And we have a sister plant in Calgary, but we even get into their backyard depending on certain that we've wound up shipping to Edmonton and into Vancouver, which again traditionally is, is their territory, but it could have been a potato situation availability. Yeah. So we have to be ready at any time to be shipping anywhere. The fact that Old Dutch Foods shipped and still ships mostly to local consumers has had an effect on their method of advertising. Unlike the advertisements during the wars or the promotions on the Buy Canada online pages, Old Dutch has a different approach altogether. Advertising is really 
next to non-existent in terms of media stuff. Old Dutch is still very, very tightly tied to community events and uh, on the gra- at the grassroots level, like amateur hockey teams, things of that nature, and of course professional teams like the Blue Bombers, things of that nature. But there's a, there's a lot of community stuff that, that goes on. In terms of routine media, print advertising, well, Frito-Lay is the, they, they have very deep pockets because they're part, part of PepsiCo, so they spend a, a wad uh, on, on advertising. Old Dutch is a, is a small player per se, and just doesn't have the, the wherewithal to spend that kind of money on, on media and print advertising. Word of mouth and the quality of products is our, our advertising. It is without a doubt that products from Old Dutch Foods are symbolically Canadian. They have mastered the ketchup flavor, and by shipping locally and supporting local organizations, they have anchored themselves into Canadian snack culture. This is in stark contrast to the symbolic consumer nationalism seen in advertisements during World War I and II, and the Buy Canada promotions, who use supporting the Canadian army and economy as selling points for their product. There is one thing that Old Dutch advertisements for the war and Buy Canada movement do have in common, and that's having pride in being Canadian. Here's the big twist. Old Dutch is an American company. Old Dutch is a company that was founded by a fellow uh, named Karl Marx, of all things, uh, in Minneapolis, uh, making chips out of his home, which was not unusual at the time. They're really fragile products, and so until packaging really improved, uh, Old Dutch and many other potato chip marketers only served a very local community, extremely local. Uh, But what happened was that there were folks from food distributors in Winnipeg who were driving down to Minneapolis, picking up boxes of old Dutch potato chips and then bringing them back to Winnipeg. And so this became so popular here in Winnipeg that those distributors asked Old Dutch to set up a plant here in the city. They said, we can't keep up with the demand. Why don't you set up a Canadian plant to serve this market that we have cultivated for you, in essence? So that's how they came to uh, Winnipeg in the 1950s and uh, have grown uh, throughout Western Canada and then far more recently into Eastern Canada. How have we been led to believe that Old Dutch is as Canadian as, I don't know, maybe not maple syrup, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, well, you have the potatoes are supplied by Canadian farmers. The canola oil that the potatoes are fried in, supplied by Canadian farmers. Uh, the workers are Canadian. Uh, and so um, in many ways, folks think of this as their product. It's made here for them. So uh, it's American in the sense that the, the family that currently owns the company, um, the Annensons, might be American, but even they, they would spend many of their, their summers here in, in Winnipeg and surrounding area. So uh, all these sorts of connections, I think, cultivated the notion that this is really our company, a Canadian company. And I guess having flavors, you know, that you could only find in Canada might have oh, some. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so uh, salt and vinegar, all these vinegary-based flavors, barbecue, 
those tend to be way more popular in Canada than in the United States. Uh, and so because they have also been um, producing flavors for these specific Canadian needs or tastes, mm -hmm. uh, it also makes it seem as though it's a, it's a more local product than in some ways it might be. How rare is it to, to find this kind of binational company that kind of exists in today's market? Like it's... Uh, I, I don't have statistics for you, but um, usually when we think of that, we think of multinationals. You yeah. know, some entity that is in multiple countries doesn't really have any particular national identity. Uh, the loyalty is to the dollar rather than to any flag. Uh, but there are some companies uh, along the lines like Old Dutch who uh, will establish two versions of themselves, a Canadian version and an American version. Often it's for tax reasons or regulations. Uh, but in, uh, in Old Dutch's case, the expansion has almost always been as a result of invitation rather than a decision on um, the family, the owning family's part that they want to expand. So they came to Winnipeg because these distributors invited them. Um, they expanded into eastern Canada because with the collapse of a couple of chip manufacturers out east, those companies that were owned by those families at that time contacted the Anansons and asked to be bought out by them. So it's been, uh, a, in their case, uh, an expansion uh, in some ways by invitation rather than by intent. We heard from University of Winnipeg student Benoit Morham on how national identity plays a role in how and what we consume. And although Old Dutch differs from the symbolic consumer nationalism seen in advertisements during the World Wars, they nevertheless have cemented themselves into the Canadian identity through their signature branding and community marketing campaigns, becoming a regular fixture at certain Canadian get-togethers, such as bond spiels and rodeos, socials, fishing, and even horse races. Our next podcast by University of Winnipeg student Matthew Cusick reflects this marketing strategy. He talks about how Old Dutch further integrated themselves into Canadian communities by being a fixture at what some would say the most Canadian of pastimes, hockey. When I think of sports advertising, I always like to think of Super Bowl commercials. Just the big spectacle of it. It makes me wonder, how did we get to this? Where did advertising and sports come together? There's a few key questions I want to ask to help figure this out. How did corporations come to support and advertise in sporting events? And what themes do we see in sports advertising, and how are they connected with sports? I read a great article the other day written by Stephen Jackson and David Andrews. They talk about what drives a consumer. How does a company relate to them? They point out that when we look at sports, it's one of the most well-known performative cultures, and history and tradition are the cornerstones of sport. And because of that, identities begin to form a consumer base. Sports bring communities, friends, families together to share a common goal, and it's easy to see how a company can benefit from it. Some of the ways we can see advertising with sports would be the corporate logo on an ice, or the logo on the football kit. I think it helps corporate investment in sports because it argues that the generated value of being associated with a sports franchise will help bring brand awareness to the fan base. Being sponsored with that team, people may want to buy into that particular product because of that sponsorship. Going back to that history and tradition, people can really relate. Look at the commercials we see today when you watch a hockey game. There's tons of advertisements that really connect to a consumer. And we can see it through a commercial on TV or even a logo on the ice. 
the consumer is going to be exposed to that kind of brand and advertising. The company benefits by having its name and brand associated with a popular franchise, and the team is benefited because of the funding it takes in from the sponsor. One example we can look at is snack foods, things like chips or soda. How often do we sit down in front of the TV and watch a great hockey game with a big bag of chips and a drink? You can see advertising today. The snack food advertisers are targeting their ads, and a lot of it is invested in the sport market. I want to take a look at an interview by Sarah Story. She interviewed Old Dutch's David Oy in 2013. David Oy really does a great job of explaining the marketing behind Old Dutch Foods and discuss the marketing techniques of Old Dutch in relation to their sponsor with the Canadian Hockey League, as well as the local community. If you look at the local rinks, they, a lot of local rinks around town, arenas, they have the Old Dutch sign. Okay. Right. So we're, we we do have uh, that. Uh, Budget to donate back to things okay. like that. Yeah, it seems to be um, connected with sport. It, it is connected with sport. I think that you know you get a lot of exposure that way okay. for one thing, right? You get exposure that way, yeah. and um, you know it's kind of like you know kids and sport and chips and pop. That kind of all goes together, you okay. know, in, in my opinion. Now I'm not like I said, I'm not the marketing guy, but that's mm -hmm. kind of what I think. Okay. But I, again, you know, with the Canadian Hockey League, that's another thing. You know, can't afford to go to the NHL anymore mm -hmm. right even the cfl is getting really expensive mm -hmm. um but uh, yeah so go to the next level down and, and it's which are quite local actually which are which are local yeah. which are local yeah. yeah yeah see this clip is interesting to me because it shows where old dutch is targeting its advertising they know they can't get into the big leagues like the nhl so they're going after the smaller league like the chl and as well as the local rinks and communities across western canada we can look at it like this. Kids are growing up in these small towns and communities eating old Dutch chips at the rink, or even look at it from the sponsorship perspective. The Canadian Hockey League, yeah, they're branching down because of expenses and market competition, but arguably it's a good thing. Hockey is a timeless Canadian tradition. Kids grow up playing hockey and watching the young prospects in smaller towns. They can associate and relate to these memories later on in life when they're making a decision on a game time snack food. Hey. I remember this. I remember old Dutch. I used to eat as a kid at the rink growing up. It's the history and timeless connection between sport and the brand that can appeal to consumers. Let's play another clip here from the Oi interview where he discusses the way old Dutch advertises with the CHL. We've teamed up with the, what they call the CHL. That's the Canadian Hockey League. Okay. That's the junior hockey, like the Western Hockey League guys, the Brandon Wheat Kings. Yes, absolutely. Those guys, right? Yeah. So we, we, we're a big sponsor with them now. Oh, good. So we, we do a lot of advertising. If, if you happen to watch a CHL game, you'll always see our logo, right, on, on the ice oh, and nice. things like that. Yeah. Having that logo on the ice or selling the potato chips of the rink is capitalizing on brand awareness and targeting a certain market by connecting it with that timeless tradition. I think this interview does a great job of explaining the pros of advertising with a sports franchise. Driven media value and long-term success of the team will be a driver for sales and promotion. When we look at the CHL, advertising with them, having the logo on the ice, being the official sponsor will further brand awareness. But also, connecting Old Dutch to the local rings will help further brand awareness on a small town level. That podcast rang very true for me because my, some of my earliest moments of eating ketchup chips were at the canteen at the local hockey rink, where I used to frequent as a kid. It's a very effective and in some ways smarter method of advertising. And I think that helps to make them feel as though they are a local business. Yeah. Because they are there at those local events and uh, as opposed to, you know, some larger, uh, more higher profile event that has more of a, a national or an international presence. And that's not to say that Old Dutch didn't have a presence on television, though. Like, oh, again, yeah. Like, again, they were in the community. 
probably their most significant TV campaign in Canada would also be something fairly unique. They had their own show, it was called Kids Bids. Yes. Canadians uh, on the prairies of a certain generation will know exactly what this was because it was an important part of their childhoods. Uh, but this was a, an auction game show for children where instead of children bidding on prizes using money, they bid on prizes using empty old Dutch potato chip packaging. And it was a, a show that was uh, not produced for national distribution. Uh, it was actually many shows. Uh, so each major prairie city in Canada would have its own version of kids' bids. There was the one in Saskatoon that was a different one from the one in Winnipeg. So it would, all, it would be like a bunch of TV local affiliates? Or exactly, like kind of, okay. yes. So they'd each have their own host, they'd each have their own old Dutch girl, as they called the woman in the Dutch maid costume who demonstrated the products you could bid on, uh -huh. and then it would have local children who would uh, show up at the studio with their packaging in order to have an opportunity to be on this show. One thing they all had in common though was that the, the grand prize, the most expensive prize, mm. was a bicycle. So that the intent of this show from old Dutch's point of view probably was that this would be something that would encourage people to buy more chips, mm -hmm. to get more packaging, to have a greater chance of success when you appeared on the show. But we interviewed a number of people who had been contestants back in the 1960s when this show aired. And the overwhelming majority of them talked about how they did not increase their chip consumption for the sake of this show. What they did instead was recruited their parents, their parents' co-workers, their neighbors, uh, their fellow church members to collect packaging on their behalf. <laughs> and then uh, most of them also would troll back lanes underneath bleachers at community centers, uh, rummage through garbage bins collecting empty packaging. It was really an inadvertent recycling program. And then once you had enough in your mind to be able to appear on this show, you just showed up at the studio and waited for your opportunity to go on the program and try and secure the prize of your choice. Wow. Or in some cases, all the prizes. So how did some of the contestants regard their time on Kids Bids? Most of them loved it. Uh, for, for many of them, it was extremely important because it gave them access to consumer goods that their families could not afford. So uh, in some of them who had won a bicycle spoke of how significant that was for them because it was uh, an item of middle-class respectability that they could not afford in their family. And this was the only way they were going to get a bike was if they won it on a show like this. Must be a point of pride, too, if they won. Like, you know, Very much wants so. to win something. But, but other than just going on and being a game of chance, they actually worked to try to get this done. Oh, there was strategizing, yeah. for yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, there was uh, people who spoke about how they would try and bid on particular items thinking that they were less popular than the bike and therefore, given the number of points that they had for the packaging that they had brought with them, that maybe they would have a shot at something. And you had others, of course, who uh, had managed to secure such a network of trash collectors on their behalf that they could clean up all the prizes. My sister kept jabbing me with her elbow in the ribs to bid. 
And I kept telling her, well, we don't have any more points. That's Doug Krocek. Born and raised in North End Winnipeg, Krocek remembers when he and his younger sister were on the first show where somebody had mega points and won all the prizes, much to the chagrin of the rest of the participants. We had maybe a thousand. We thought we had lots. We had a old tin, because old Dutch chips used to come in a tin. And we had a jam full of package or wrappers, and my mom collected from her work, and my dad collected, and we ate some extra chips over the course of the time. And we thought we had, based upon what we saw on the shows, we had enough that we thought we could win something. But I, what I remember from the show was um, there was one one guy, he, he basically won everything. You know, and so he would go, you know, we'd be bidding 100, 200, he'd go 1,000, 5,000, and then that would, the bidding would be over. Was that considered, um, well, I don't want to say cheating. Well, there were no rules against it, and there were no rules against winning all the prizes or even coming back repeatedly and doing that. And we did speak to a host who talked about how he was uh, sometimes disappointed by that and wished that there were rules. One contestant talked about how he was one of those kids he had who cleaned up the prizes on more than one occasion, but that he would go back to his neighborhood and distribute the goods oh, to wow. other kids in his neighborhood who didn't have the same opportunity to be on the show or the same opportunity that others with more money had to just buy those products outright. Even though they didn't win anything, Krocek fondly remembers his time on Kids Bits. Yeah, so, but it was, I would say it was, a, you know, not other than not winning anything, uh, you know, it still was a pretty good experience. Kind of enjoyed uh, being part of it and, uh, it was, as a kid, it was just a neat thing to do. So this this really had a significant effect in all sorts of ways they probably didn't expect. Yes, yes. For sure something like this could air today. <laughs> no, I mean, there's rules about advertising to children now that would make it impossible. But uh, it was interesting to see that the, the reasons for the creation of these rules against advertising to children in such a direct manner mm -hmm. didn't really apply in this situation. It wasn't that the outcome was lots more children buying or enticing their parents to buy more chips. It was more a matter of having all these really interesting spin-off effects that you could not have predicted. The recycling aspect of it, the redistribution of goods within a neighborhood, the um, ability to acquire uh, you know, middle-class consumer goods that your family otherwise would never be able to afford to provide to you. So when did the show eventually end? It was only on for a few years, and it's really hard to nail down dates, uh, mm -hmm. in part because this was a show because that tended on yeah, different different cities, so different cities, yeah. and it tended to air live at a time when even if a recording was made by the studio for airing later, they would just re-record shows subsequently over that recording. So there, there's no video of these shows. There's a couple of photographs that we managed to find in uh, Saskatchewan, uh, in the public library there of all places. But otherwise, uh, there's, there's really nothing other than people's memories. I still have people who contact me uh, asking for either access to recordings uh, of you know, siblings of theirs who have since passed away, or asking to be interviewed about their own experiences. But even you know, years after the completion of these interviews, people are still really interested. I guess that kind of reflects people's fondness towards snack foods, not just as like, this is my favorite snack food. There's still that ingrained nostalgic quality, I guess, or 
these memories of their childhood that's synonymous with these snacks? Food is, is very emotional for folks uh, and it certainly connects very strongly to people's memories. Um, smell and taste um, have linkages there that are uh, physiological apparently. When people talk about their favorite snack, it's not always just about taste. Uh, some of it is about remembering a happier time. Uh, some of it is connecting with uh, strong memories of community events or family or celebrations. The snacks are a very cheap form of fun. You know, for two bucks, how can you have an experience that is that strong or that enjoyable? So how in a modern context does Old Dutch market themselves today? Old Dutch doesn't do a lot of marketing, mm -hmm. uh, in part because that tends to be a very expensive thing to do, uh, in part because their biggest competitor, Lay's, does a lot of that and is able to spend far more on advertising than they actually gain in product sales as a result of that advertising. So Old Dutch is far more strategic. Uh, so they do run the occasional TV ad, but it's not that that's something that they've been doing year over year and it's always a new ad. Mm -hmm. They did some ads back in the 60s and 70s and then didn't advertise on TV for a long stretch and then revived it again in the early 2000s. The more contemporary ads tend to have some sort of local athlete uh, promoting the chip. So they still kept with this kind of local community angle in amateur sports. Yes. Here's Doug Krocek again. You know, and it was just, they were just part of the community. And so when they did kids' bids, it just kind of made sense because they were part of the community. Okay. You know, yeah. and even today, Old Dutch, they're involved. They, I don't know if you know, with like little kids' football. The youngest age group of football, they call them little crunchers. And Old Dutch provides all the jerseys and, uh, you know, and they do a lot. Uh, they're involved with uh, high school football and they sponsor all kinds of things. And, and generally they're... Uh, you know, just generally a good corporate citizen. Future of Old Dutch is going to be interesting. Uh, it's going to face some of the same challenges that many of these family-owned businesses face, which is what about the next generation? Do you have uh, children or grandchildren who are willing to, much less able to, take over management of the company? Or do you sell to an outside investor and then risk it no longer being an, in, an independent local business? Or do you sell to your own employees, uh, which has its risks as well in terms of their abilities to uh, maintain this company into the future? For as long as uh, it's been around here in Canada, it's been a very consistent approach to uh, management and to its public face. I mean, their, their logo has not changed. Their logo is very artistic, very detailed, based on a, a painting done by one of their favorite wildlife artists whose artwork hangs in both the headquarters in Minneapolis and here in Winnipeg. And that's not, that's not really typical for uh, some of your larger multinational companies. Those sorts of local connections, personal interests, uh, get weeded out because they're, they're seen as quirks rather than, you know, advantages for the business. Sometimes, you know, you're just talking with a group of people and it's sort of our age group and something would be sort of, I don't know what the talk would be, but then somebody would go, yeah, sold for 100 old Dutch points. <laughs> and everybody our age group knew exactly what you're talking about. Uh, my kids don't have a clue.
You've been listening to Preserves, a Manitoba food history podcast. Produced, written, narrated, and hosted by myself, Kent Davies, Janice Thiessen, Benoit Morham, and Matthew Cusick. With interviews by Sarah Story, Elizabeth Ann Johnson, and Sarah Riley. Kimberly Moore creates the photos and images that accompany each podcast. Our theme music is by Robert Kenning. Preserves is recorded at the University of Winnipeg Oral History Center. You can check out the OHC and all the work that we do at oralhistorycenter.ca. For more Manitoba Food History Project content, information, and events, go to manitobafoodhistory.ca. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have a Manitoba food story and you want to share it, contact us by clicking on the contact link on the website. Preserves is made possible from a grant from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. Thanks for listening.